0: Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's Holy Word. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts the will you would have us desire, the love you would shape in our world, and the grace that will enable us to walk in godliness and holiness before you. Amen. A reading from the Gospel account of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, the Gospel of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jackie. Corey was just 27 years old when he was struck by a car and he passed away. He had grown up in the foster system and he never married. He had never had a birthday celebrated in any of his foster homes and he never had a wedding day. But Corey loved Jesus and he was a faithful member of his church. He never really had a girlfriend. He was the kind of person we would classify as a high introvert. He never told anybody when his birthday was because, frankly, he didn't want a celebration with himself in the middle. But he had a truck, and he had a job, and at his memorial service... It was interesting because at his memorial service, uh, one youth got up in the youth group and he said that he had followed Jesus with his life and was trying to walk with God because all his life he wanted to be like Corey. He wanted to be a guy who knows God's love and loves Jesus in return. An elderly lady got up and talked about how Corey had helped her with some errands. Other people got up and talked about how Corey was always willing to loan his truck. He was always willing to help someone move. He was always willing to cart some big piece of furniture that needed to be moved from one part of town to another. Three different guys got up and talked about how Corey was their AA sponsor and it helped them maintain sobriety and sanity. Corey's life was a life that was never once celebrated in his entire life. Not one birthday, not one celebration, not one congratulations, you got the job. His life was so appreciated, but it was never celebrated until he was no longer here. Friends, we're going to look at a passage in which God calls his people to celebrate to celebrate what God has done. What God had done in quarry. What God is doing in you, in your children. To not just appreciate it, but to stop everything and say, it is time to acknowledge this. To gather the people and to celebrate. We're going to look at the passage in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 7, where, where, where God comes down as they celebrate the, 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 the construction of the temple. God's people had done this, and yet it wasn't really about them. And they weren't the ones they were celebrating. We're going to learn something about this, I hope. It's going to be 2 Chronicles 7. We'll project it if you want to follow along there. If you want to look in the Pew Bible, we're on page 684. This is the word of the Lord in Chronicles. When Solomon finished praying, he's just dedicated the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped God and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good, His love endures forever. And then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever." Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets and all the Israelites were standing and Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord and there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of fellowship offerings because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings and the fat portions. So Solomon observed the festival. At that time for seven days and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo, from Hamath to the wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held an assembly for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven more days. And On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done For David and Solomon and for his people, Israel. What does it look like to to celebrate the work of God? To celebrate means being able to see the hand of God in things that otherwise might look very human to you. What they're celebrating on the surface is that they had spent a whole lot of money and they had put a lot of work into building this big building, and yet they weren't patting themselves on the back celebrating the awesome thing we've done. No, they were celebrating what God had done. God's faithfulness to them, God's willingness to come be present with them, God's provision for them to build this temple, God's willingness to be in this place. It means being able to look through what outwardly we are trained as 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 Pharisees to think is our doing and to actually see the hand of God in the midst of it. And this is the very God who had triumphed over their enemies. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had given them victory. He had established his kingship. He had made his presence there with his people. Uh, The celebration begins with this deep sense of the greatness of God. Uh, You know, that's what they're celebrating. Not our victories, but his. You know, when you're dealing with a graduation, say it's a graduation of your child. To, To step back to celebrate biblically is to step back and first acknowledge that this is an important thing that deserves celebrating. A milestone has been reached, but then to say, and this is not our doing and this is not my child's doing. This is the faithfulness of our God who has been faithful to see us through and provided for us every step of the way. It's seeing what God has done. And it's gathering together as a community to do that. Did you notice? Verse 3, there's a repetition in this in this passage. Because celebration is never a private affair. Verse 3, all the Israelites were there and bowed down before God. Verse 4, all the people offered sacrifices. Verse 5, the king and all the people dedicated the temple. Verse 8, it was a vast assembly. Verse 10, they were God's. People, a single entity, a family. Here we see a community gathering together to celebrate that God has done something even in the midst of what they apparently had done. Think of all the things through your life that deserve celebrating. The times when you should be gathering people together and saying, no, this isn't something we've done. This is something the Lord has done in our midst. When you move into your first apartment, God growing you as an independent adult, when you paid off your credit card debts and are free of burdens, the first time you, know, you, you convince your child to actually climb over the big scary outside coil at City Museum that you're certain you're going to fall to your death, but they face their fears and they trust God and they go across. When a child professes faith, when a believer is baptized, when you've gone a month without looking at pornography, when you've had to confront a family member for the first time about a pattern of of cruelty, when you find that you've gained a new friend, when you ask somebody's forgiveness for the first time and they grant it, when you're fighting with your spouse and you realize, you know, five years ago, this fight would have been 30 times nastier. God has done something. God is changing us. That's a time to set back and celebrate and gather people together and say, you would not believe how clean and fair we actually fought this weekend. To celebrate when God has done something and to go all out in rejoicing before him. Here at the, the temple dedication, they celebrated for 14 days. Seven days celebrating the temple, then seven days with the Passover. That's a really long time. And at the end, the people went to their homes. And verse 10 says they were joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord has done. That's what I pray for every one of you every single Sunday. Now this life is filled with so much hardship and so much sorrow and so much sleep deprivation. And when we focus on ourselves, we get so beaten down. My prayer is that you would go home rejoicing in your heart for the good things the Lord has done. That your eyes would not be on yourself and your sin, and your religious performance, and your failures, but that your eyes would be lifted up to the Lord, and you would see His hand in the midst of it all, because it's not about us. It's about the saving power of Christ to redeem every single sphere of our lives, our careers, our family, our chores, everything we are and have, being a gift and a calling from God. Friends, when you have Jesus... Joyful hope is the trajectory of your life. You're not always going to feel that. There are all sorts of things that can steal that from you, what the Bible calls a bitter root, but that joyful life of celebration in God's victory is your birthright. Jesus says to disciples who are living a hard life, who have given up everything for him, they're following him around, they're poor, they have nothing, they've lost everything, and 11 of the 12 of them are going to die horrible, hideous, painful martyrs' deaths. And he says to them, I came so that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Friends, when that kind of joy, that kind of celebration, that kind of confidence and hope gets into your soul, Grounded not in you or how faithful you are, but grounded in the faithfulness of your God who has saved you completely, fully, finally, and forever and who will never let go of you and who is delighting in you now. When that gets inside of you, that abundant life, it is contagious. Joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in our witness. Joy in difficult situations. It's contagious. Proverbs says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful. I think we've all seen how negativity is contagious. You take one office, heaven forbid, open office plan, and you take one really bitter, critical, negative, disgruntled employee and you drop them in the middle of it, and within a year, what do you have but a bitter, grumbling, disgruntled, miserable workplace filled with miserable people because it's contagious. The Bible says it's a bitter root. He tells every Christian, Christians, your job is to rip out the bitter root root and branch. That's in the Bible. It's our corporate responsibility because it's infectious and it grows below the surface. You can't see it growing. It takes you over before you know it. And yet the Bible also says that hope and joy and confidence in the power of God's grace is also contagious. I've seen it spread. I remember a friend of mine, um, you know, he'd been a believer for years, but, uh, uh, we were on vacation, and his cousin and he and his cousin would stay up till till crazy hours of the morning. And I would, of course, go to bed because I was done because I'm old. And, and and but I would hear them hours later still talking. They'd be talking about Jesus. They'd be talking about the gospel. They'd be talking about what it means to follow Christ. They'd be talking about the Bible. And I watched this one cousin's joy rub off on my friend. It was contagious. Like within within the week, my friend's soul had been revived. And he had a new faith and a new confidence and a new joy. It doesn't mean pasting on a fake church smile because church people are always supposed to be happy. That's not the Bible. It's something way deeper than that a confidence that even in the midst of hardship, the Lord is my God and he will not let me go. You know you're smitten by the love of God when you know you've been loved, when you're rested and you're free because the gospel says you don't have to work any longer. Jesus has done everything. When your heart has been captured by the beauty of the gospel, friends, that kind of joy is contagious. You think about a Cardinals game, Bush Stadium, to the end, you know, bottom of the ninth inning. The cards are down by three, but they're up to bat. The bases are loaded, but they've got two strikes against them. And then curveball comes, and they hit it, and they hit it out of the park. They've just won the game, and what do you hear in the stands? What is it that is happening? People are jumping up. They are moved emotionally. They are joyful. They are confident. They are crying out in joy because they have just experienced victory. Perhaps we have something to learn here. I mean, in a liturgical sort of way, to celebrate the victory of God and sort of liturgically go nuts. Because God is a God who defeats our enemies, He forgives our sins, He breaks our bondage, and He raises the dead. And so the psalmist concludes the Psalter, the hymn book of Israel in Psalm 150 saying, Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's contagious. I remember reading about a Navy chaplain who who had been called in. It was a hospital in Texas. He'd been called in because a guy had been brought back, flown back, medevaced from from Afghanistan with a stop-off in Germany. He had uh, stepped on a, uh, an improvised explosive device. He had lost a couple appendages. He was covered with burn marks. He was miserable. They, they knew he was going to live, but it was going to be a long road to recovery. I mean, he's walking in to this guy's room thinking, what do I possibly have to offer somebody who is scarred for life, somebody who has a future of skin grafts and transplants, and and antibiotics and and physical therapy and prosthetic limbs. He thinks, how am I going to do this? And he sits down and he starts talking with this kid. This kid's like 20 years old. And the kid tells him, I'm a Christian and I know that God is in control and and this is going to be bad. It's going to be hard, but I know God is going to use this for his good and his glory. And I know that Jesus died for my sins. And I know if I had died on that field in Afghanistan, if I had died on that highway, I would be with the Lord right now. But he has chosen to keep me here. He has called me to suffer, but he is my savior and God is my father and my sins are forgiven. And I have a hope and I have a future and nothing is going to rob me of my joy. And the chaplain was speechless. He thought he was going to have to come up with some kind of joy that might rub off on this kid who's covered in bandages. But, friends, joy is infectious. Joy grounded in the gospel, you can't contain it. And it spread, in this case, from the patient to the chaplain. Richard Foster said it this way talks about prayer and he talks about fasting and meditation and study and all the Christian disciplines that we're supposed to do to help ourselves grow, but he says celebration is the central piece of all of the spiritual disciplines because without joyful spirit, the festivity, the disciplines become dull death-breathing tools in the hands of modern Pharisees. Friends, if it's not all about Jesus and what he has done, if it's not celebrating the finished work of Christ in history on our behalf, and it's just going to crush you. So why is it so difficult? It's difficult because it takes intentionality to celebrate. I mean, think about it. I mean, Solomon uh, offered to sacrifice 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. That requires some level of planning. You've got teams of choirs. You've got all of these musical instruments. You've got all Israel gathering. They all had to figure out how to take two weeks off from work. I mean, if you can imagine the logistics, two weeks of childcare. no, they had to take them with them, but then you've got a pack for that. It's insane, but they're all there, and it's been intentional. That's the cost. I read a news story about uh, a group of people who uh, try to identify, they're very intentional in identifying children who have never had a birthday. They came across Carla Morales-Mendoza She was six years old. She had been bounced around from one foster situation to another with her three siblings. Every birthday had passed. She had never had a birthday party, and she had never had a birthday cake. And so they came together. And for the first time in her life, these these workers put together a birthday cake and a birthday party. And they invited family. They invited social workers. They invited everybody. Look at that little girl's face, Father. Look at it. That's a little girl who knows she's being loved. And the cost was somebody's intentionality to actually find out who needs celebrating and to make the celebration happen. Look at that smile. In a world where it's hard just to get by, though, that's what it takes. Thank you. So how is it possible when you're sitting here thinking, Greg, I am already emotionally drained and I'm just trying to get by and my cup is empty, how am I going to have the intentionality to actually start looking out for people who we need to celebrate the work of God in their lives. Well, it's possible when God himself draws near to you. And that's what happened at this dedication. Did you read passage about how God himself came down and showed them what was already true. He was already there. That was the point of the temple. That God is always with his people. He is present in their assembly, but he came down visibly. The priests were falling down on their faces in worship. They were all terrified to go into the temple because the presence of God was so powerfully present. God was saying, see, I'm really here. I'm really with you. I really do love you. You really are my And that's when they responded from Psalm 136 with that litany. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Repeating it again and again in Hebrew is a way of taking it to the infinite degree that God's love for you knows no bounds, no limitations, no restrictions, no, no constraints. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling the embrace of your God? Are you letting his promises wash over you? Are you resting in his love that he has for you? Because throughout the Old Testament, this temple, this sacrificial system was part of a story that was unfolding. It began in the garden when, 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 when God told, told Adam and Eve that, that they would have a descendant, one who would come, who, who the serpent would bite him, but he would crush the serpent's head one who would come. And we see that, that folding throughout the Old Testament when, when Abraham is asked to take his son Isaac, his only son, the son he loved, and take him up to the mountaintop to offer him as a sacrifice to God when his faith was tested in that way. And, and his little boy is walking up and he's saying, Dad, I see the wood, but but where's the sacrifice? Uh, where's, where's the lamb? And he responds and he tells him, God is going to provide the lamb and they get to the top of the mountain and he's ready to do what God has told him to do and as he's holding the knife over his son a voice comes out and says stop what you are doing and there's a ram caught in the thicket because God always provides the sacrifice for his people that was the point of all of those temple sacrifices. The temple that's being dedicated in this passage was that you would go and if you have committed some sin you would lay your hand on the animal and the sin would transfer from you to that animal and the animal would die before God instead of you so that you could go free as one who is forgiven. All of those sacrifices pointing to Jesus who said He is one greater than the temple. Jesus who said He is the priest. Jesus who said, I am the sacrifice. I lay down my life for my sheep. A greater sacrifice provided by God Himself. You can imagine what it's like when that actually captures your heart when you see that, friends, because there's one who is celebrating more profoundly than we do in this life of sorrow and grief. Because we see the one who's really celebrating here is God himself. We see it again and again through the Bible. We have this picture in our head of God as an angry ogre shaking a stick at you. That's not how he presents himself in Scripture. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a king who gives a wedding feast. And he tells everybody, come and enjoy my feast. It's a God who is offering an eternal party. Luke 15, the, the the father says when his prodigal son comes home, he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. He said, we had to rejoice and be glad. That is God's voice. It's in elsewhere in Luke 15, what, what, what Jackie read earlier, Jesus says, who of you as a hundred sheep doesn't go and find the one that's lost? And then when he finds it, he brings it on his shoulders and he calls all his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one person repents than over 99 who don't need to. See, when... In the parable of the talents, when Jesus says to to, to his servants, come and share in your master's happiness. Friends, as you look at the face of God, if you imagine God looking upon you now, what do you see? Can you see his smile? Do you hear his delight? Do you hear his laughter rejoicing over you with song? It's the Father who loves his Son, who gave his Son, to be a sacrifice for our sake that we might fall into the joyful arms of a Savior who bled and died in order to set us free. Friends, the key to this life lies beyond it, lies in the fact that Jesus has rescued you. If you don't have Jesus, friends, all it takes to come to Jesus is all you have to do is say, okay, Jesus, wash me of my sins. Cleanse me. I trust you. You're my Redeemer. I will follow you. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner, now and at the hour of my death. And friends, when that captures your heart, you're going to be ready, even in the midst of hardship, to celebrate. Because deep inside, you will have a joy and a confidence because you will know that God is your dad, that he has your back, that your sins have been paid for, that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is a resume you will never be able to embellish no matter what you do. Friends, believe the good news and enter into the celebration of God the Father. In 1819, a woman named Jerina Lee became the first female lay preacher and missionary of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States. Her autobiography was actually the first autobiography ever of an African-American woman to be published in the U.S., and she describes her experience growing up. She says, I was born on February 11th of 1783 at Cape May State of New Jersey as a free person of color. When I was seven years old, my parents left me, and I lived then as a servant girl with a Mrs. Sharp." I remember one time in which she caught me in a lie and I promised I would never ever again lie and yet that was the time that God convicted me of my sin. It was an awful point early in my history and I promised I would never do it again. But notwithstanding that promise, my heart grew harder and after a while the Spirit of God never entirely abandoned me but continued mercifully striving with me until His power eventually converted my soul. She says, The manner of that great accomplishment was as follows. It was 1804. I was 19 years old, and it happened that I went with some others to hear a missionary of the Presbyterian order preach. It was an afternoon meeting. Not many people were there. The place was a schoolroom, but the preacher was solemn, and his countenance and earnestness of his master's business appeared very strong. And though he were, as though he were speaking to a great multitude, and at the reading of the Psalms, a ray of renewed conviction darted into my soul. These were his words from the Psalter. Lord, I am vile and conceived in sin, born unholy and unclean, sprung from man whose guilt, guilty fall corrupts the race and taints us all. This description of my condition struck at my heart and made me feel in some measure the weight of my sins and my sinful nature but not knowing how to run to the lord for help i was driven of satan himself and in the course of a few days i attempted suicide there was a brook about a quarter of a mile from my house it was a deep hole the water moved about heavily there and i heard a voice telling me to go down and drown myself and at the time i had a book in my hand it was a sabbath morning about 10 o'clock and so i resorted there and on coming to the water I sat down on the bank and on looking into it I felt drowning would be an easy death. It seemed as if someone was speaking to me saying put your head under. It won't distress you at all but by some means of which I can't explain my thoughts were taken to this purpose. But then I went from that place to a house again. It was the unseen hand of God which saved me from murdering my own soul. So she explains how she then went to another woman's house who saw her reading the Bible, took away the Bible, thought it would be unhelpful, gave her a novel instead. She wasn't pleased. Then she went to Philadelphia and she began going to an Anglican church. Uh, She says the pastor was an Englishman by the name of Pilmore, one of a number who at first preached Methodism in America in the city of New York. But while sitting under his ministry, which was about three months at that time, it appeared there was a wall between me and the communion with this people, which was higher than I could possibly ever see over. We now know it was a a segregated church and they didn't want colored members. Colored. She says, it made an impression on me that this is not the people for you. This time, she says, when my conviction was great, yet I did not know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I did not know He was a person of the Trinity. I did not know the pardon of His sins. I felt the consciousness that that if I died without pardon, that my lot would be damnation. And if I would pray, I didn't know how to pray. I couldn't form any connection with the ideas and the words. I didn't even know that Christ had died for the sins of the world and to save sinners. And yet, on returning home at noon, I inquired of the head cook of our house. She was a Methodist. I asked her about the rules of the Methodist. She explained about the rules of the Methodists, and she told her that I could not even go for one year following such rules, but she agreed to go to church with her. She says the man who was about to preach that day, the Reverend Richard Allen, was a bishop of the African Episcopal Methodists in America. During the labors of this man that afternoon, I had come to the conclusion that this is the people which my heart unites with. And it so happened that as soon as the surface closed, he invited such as felt a desire to flee from the wrath to come, to unite on trial with them, and I embraced the opportunity. Three weeks from that day, my soul was gloriously converted to God under preaching at the very outset of the sermon. The text was barely pronounced. It was Acts chapter 8. I perceive your heart is not right in the sight of God. When there appeared to my view in the center of my heart one sin, and this was malice against a particular individual who had strove deeply to injure me, and I resented them. And at this discovery, I said, Lord, I forgive them. And I forgive every creature. And that instant, it appeared to me as, as, as a garment which had entirely enveloped my whole person, even my fingers ends. It split at the crown of my head, was stripped away from me, passing like a shadow from my sight when the glory of God seemed to cover me instead. And that moment, she writes, though hundreds were present, I leapt to my feet, and declared that God, for Christ's sake, had pardoned the sins of my soul. Great was the ecstasy of my mind, for I felt that not only the sin of malice was pardoned, but all my other sins were pardoned as well. That day was the first when my heart had believed the gospel, and my tongue had made confession of Jesus unto my salvation. The first words uttered, a part of that song which shall fill in Eternity with its sound was glory to God. For a few moments I had power right there in that church to exhort sinners to come to Jesus. And I told of the wonders and the goodness of Christ who had clothed me with his salvation. And during this, the minister sat there silently watching me until my soul felt its duty had been performed when he declared another witness of the power of Christ. To forgive sins on earth was manifest in my conversion. His text from Acts 8, as already related, became the power of God to salvation for me, and I believed. I was baptized according to the direction of our Lord, who had said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach my gospel and believe and be baptized. And how appropriately can I now sing, That Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the blood of Jesus would have that same power in the hearts and lives of your people gathered here today. Lord, that you would captivate our hearts, that we might celebrate and rejoice and be glad and enter into our master's happiness, for Christ has bound the strong man and set captives free. And so we consecrate to you the elements of this sacrament, Lord, that you administer the good news to our hearts that are poor. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.